When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Bird Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we talk forest grouse research with Utah grad student Logan Clark. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 261. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll be talking forest grouse research today with Logan Clark and the help of pointing dogs. More on that to come. First, I want to thank Patreon patrons of the Bird Shop Podcast, those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show. I appreciate it, and those patrons are eligible for bonus content, Patreon giveaways, and a set of the Bird Shop Podcast can coolers and stickers as well. You can learn more and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. One quick reminder that when this episode launches, the National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic will be kicking off on the day of this release in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. If you're listening to this and in the area, maybe you already have plans to come, definitely stop by the Onyx Hunt Final Rise and Upland Gun Company booth. You can't miss us. And... If you're looking for something to do on Friday evening, you want to stop by that offline party hosted by Onyx Hunt in the area as well. Hope to see some of you at Pheasant Fest in South Dakota this weekend. Okay, we're going to move into the conversation today, but before we do, I want to mention a bit of sad news, somewhat in the spirit of today's episode. Member of the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp family, Earl Johnson, aka Earl the Pearl Johnson, Passed away earlier this week. He would have been 76 this month. Gone too soon, without a doubt. 
Earl was always the life of the party and a focal point at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. As passionate a bird dog and upland bird man as ever was. And you could often find him in the bird cleaning shack where he religiously logged, categorized, aged, sexed, and classified all of the birds harvested, whether it was at Pine Ridge or a hunting camp with his friends and family. That's just what Earl did. And again, it's nice to know that people like our guest Logan today are carrying the torch into the future when it comes to upland bird science and research. And with that in mind, I just wanted to share my condolences here on the podcast with all of Earl's family and friends. I know there's plenty of listeners out there that would have crossed paths with Earl over the years. I got the chance to hunt with him a time or two, follow his setters around the grouse woods. And this is yet another reminder of just how precious every day is, every hunt we get with friends, family. You never know when it might be the last. Earl, it was good to know you, buddy. And your legacy will live on through all of your friends and family. Thoughts and prayers out to all of you. All right, let's talk to Logan. Our guest today, Logan Clark, is a graduate student in Utah, currently conducting a forest grouse research project, studying mainly dusky grouse, but some rough grouse as well. We learn a little bit about Logan's background and path into the study of wildlife and natural resources, and we'll talk plenty of western forest grouse on today's show. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and on to the Birdshot Podcast, Logan Clark. My guest today, Logan Clark, all the way from Utah. Where in Utah, buddy? I'm actually in Logan, Utah. Oh, wow. That's obviously yep. why you chose to live there, right? Yeah, well, that's where Utah State University is. And yeah, so that's <laughs> my same name. So I guess maybe more of a coincidence than a, than a by choice thing. But it had, yeah. it had to have been uh, in the pro column as you were doing your analysis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you been out in, in Logan, Utah? Oh, I moved out here almost exactly a year ago, late February last year. Okay. Why don't you give us, uh, we're, we're definitely going to dive in today and, and talk upland birds and we'll talk some Western hunting and uh, go back to your roots a little bit, but why don't you give everybody just a brief intro, sort of your field of study and uh, some of the topics of conversation that we'll be getting into today. Sure. So I'm a, I'm a master's student I'm trying to get a degree in wildlife biology here at Utah State. And... Um, my project revolves around the mostly the dusky grouse, but I'm doing a little bit of rough grouse stuff as well. Just uh, trying to get a, a set on their like population ecology and different like monitoring methods. And then we're doing some pretty cool telemetry stuff with them as well, putting trackers on them. Yeah, absolutely. And and for the listeners, Logan, you kind of you reached out to me. Um, I think I don't. Was it after was it after I did that little solo episode where I was I was reading from my Gordon Gullion books and stuff? Do you remember when it was? Uh it was a couple of weeks ago. I had just heard your your Dusky Grouse episode oh, from yeah, like that, a with year Noah or so. Davis. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And in at the end you kind of had a little call out for anyone else that had some more info on Duskies, and so I hit you up. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was perfect timing. Um yeah, you had you had checked in and you know, I, I get asked very, fairly often for, we talk a lot about rough grouse hunting on this podcast. I will come to no surprise uh, to people that listen often. 
And oftentimes we're very sort of Great Lakes grouse hunting centric um, mm-hmm. as that's sort of my backyard and what I do. But we'll get, you know, folks from Western upland hunters that are interested and and they're they're wanting to learn more about, you know, Western specific forest grouse hunting. And um, so we had Noah on and we were talking and yeah, I, I remember at that time sort of asking him and you reached out and lo and behold, there you are, a uh, master's student. Um, focusing on forest grouse research. So uh, definitely appreciate you taking the time to join us today and looking forward to getting into that a bit. But I would like to hear how you got sort of on this path in life, uh, honorable path in life, I might add. Uh, but what talk to me about your, your roots, origins in upland hunting and the outdoors. Yeah, so I'm, I'm from uh, the Great Lakes as well. I was born and raised in northern lower peninsula michigan in the traverse city area and i've always been fascinated with birds in general just like outside of hunting i've just had a huge passion for birds you know all kinds of songbirds and have been a really avid like bird watcher uh, mostly influenced by my grandmother who's also a big grouse hunter as well she's from the upper peninsula and then both she and my dad really influenced me into getting into bird hunting uh you know they're both youpers and uh, you know they call them partridge up there the rough grouse and you know ever, ever since i became of age i was just really into the bird hunting the rough grouse hunting in both the the lower peninsula but mostly the upper peninsula is where we spent most of our hunting time we have a little family hunting camp in the upper peninsula and uh, that just kind of led me into uh pursuing an undergraduate degree in wildlife from Michigan State and, you know, all the while trying to get in as much hunting as I can, get out of Lansing and drive north during that undergrad years. And I've since spent like the last six or seven years just kind of bouncing around the country, working wildlife technician jobs for like the Park Service and some universities, other like agencies mostly doing like bird field work. Um, I did spend a season catching bobwhite quail in Oklahoma, but all my other field work has been more like non-game bird related. And then I really started applying to to grad school the past couple of years, and it really just came together last year when they offered me this position out here in in Utah studying the forest grouse. Very cool. Man, there's a lot of strings to pull on there. I I wish it was more common. I, I don't recall... Uh, too many people referencing their grandma as as grouse hunters, but that's that's pretty cool. Uh, oh yeah, into, yeah. into grouse hunting. Mm-hmm. Was she? Does she? Well, is she? Is she still with us to start? No, nope, no, nope, she's no longer with us. All right, all right. Sorry to hear that. But did she? Was she uh, known for? Did she have a favorite shotgun or anything? You can tell us about grandma's grouse hunting adventures. Oh yeah, she had. I don't remember the make, but she had a. Uh, side-by-side 20 gauge and her father was a a lumberman in the up she's from this town called Lance. sits on lake superior in the upper peninsula and you he would take her out oh capital l apostrophe capital a n s e wow okay i gotta check that anytime you mention lake superior my my ears go i grew up yeah no it's just one of my favorite towns up there it's very centrally located you can drive in any direction and find yourself in all these cool areas. Yeah. But yeah, that's where she grew up. Um, and, you know, her dad would take her to work. You know, he's a, a forester, a lumberman. And he would often, or she would tell me that he would often drop her off at these two tracks. 
and you know come back and pick her up in an hour and she'd always have two or three partridge in hand every yeah. time she'd come back uh and this was without a dog you know this is just when she was younger um and i spent a lot of time with her growing up she was kind of like my my daycare she lived down the street from me and she really got me into the bird watching as well in her yeah. retirement she became an avid bird watcher while still being an avid grouse hunter and so she was a major influence on both of those aspects of my life and kind of is the reason i ended up where i am right now wow that's really cool man uh what what is it about birds and and i'll just i'll sort of add in like i i definitely have an interest in birds i, I don't think i could say like it, it's never really gone too far beyond grouse and woodland birds for that matter like i wouldn't I would never sit back and call myself a bird watcher, but mm-hmm. clearly, clearly they've captivated me through most of my life. And I mean, there's just something fascinating about birds. I mean, they really need no explanation, but what is it for mm-hmm. you? Like, if I ask you that, like, how, what do you describe your interest and passion for birds? Oh, mostly this, the life history behind a lot of them. Like the fact that they can obviously fly and they have these crazy migrations, at least yeah. like the migratory ones do. Um, you know, they're also just a very charismatic taxa of animals. You, there's really nowhere on earth that you can go without seeing birds in front of you at almost any time. Yeah. Um, and there's just so many different kinds, like getting into being able to tell them all apart and starting to keep lists of species that you've seen at either certain places or certain times of year, certain years. You know, a lot of avid birders keep all these lists. Like, these are the birds I saw in in Michigan in the year 2023. And then I got another list for this County and that County. And obviously a life list of the species I've seen throughout my whole life. Um, just that you can really get into the details of just chasing certain bird species uh, and just all this listing stuff. And there's even a little competitive aspect of it as well. Um, but yeah, I've just always had the fascination with birds since I was a little kid. And my grandma taught me how to ID them all at a young age. And then as I, kind of got into college and where I am now. And I'm really into like, Oh, the, the listing aspect of it and trying to maintain all these cool lists. Yeah. I, I will admit I was, I checked out your Instagram page a little bit last week and just looking at some of your posts, you know, you had, you had some pictures on there where you were kind of like your target bird or your target species. And you were out trying to mm-hmm. try to get shots of, of certain birds. And I could certainly imagine, you know, there's, I mean, you can see the parallels there in you know, somebody that that identifies as just a bird watcher versus a bird hunter i mean it's knowing the birds knowing the habitat going out to where they live finding them um, plenty of parallels there oh yeah yep and i often find myself doing both at the same time especially when i'm hunting without a dog and you don't have to pay attention to the dog and you can just walk quietly through the woods you know often this is at like peak songbird migration so you just kind of absorb all of that while you're out there looking for rough grouse it's just a great combination to have to be into both of them. Yeah. Do you have any memories as far as like first rough grouse contacts or the whether it was the first one that you got a shot at or just like what sort of captured your interest with rough grouse back in Michigan back in the day? Oh, you know, I'd always go out with my dad and grandma, you know, before I could hold a gun or anything. And so I always knew it was going to be like, my first grouse is coming up. It was somewhere around like the age of 11 or 12. Yep. Um, and I remember for the, the experience of my first rough grouse, my dad was out uh, baiting one of his uh, deer stands for archery up there in the upper peninsula near our camp. And he just kind of handed me this 
single barrel youth 20 gauge that he had bought for me a couple months before with the intention of like, I'm going to get my first um, grouse. It was a youth 20 gauge as well. And he just kind of sent me off. He said, don't go any farther than like shouting distance while he was setting up his deer stand. And um, I actually flushed one on my own and shot it out of the air. And I could not believe it. I didn't get the best shot on it. I had to go and run up and, you know, dispatch it. And it was kind of like an emotional experience having to do that for the first time, being both like somewhat distraught about that, but then also super, you know, accomplished and happy that I finally got my first bird. Yeah, definitely. I'll never forget that. Yeah, that's cool. Out of the air as well, walked up and and knocked down. Yeah, that's that's definitely what I remember. (laughs) Any any bird dogs in the family back then, or was it was it mainly kind of your classic? I mean, it's familiar to me. Maybe not everybody, but classic sort of Northwoods deer hunting and and casual partridge hunting. Yeah, I grew up with some setters. My parents weren't. My mom grew up with setters her whole life, but never as for like bird hunting. So neither of my parents really had the, you know, the drive to like train a bird dog to be a bird dog, but they really liked that style of dog. And so I grew up with Gordon and English setters. And then around high school, my dad got a Brittany Spaniel that we kind of somewhat trained to be a bird dog. Um, And so that was kind of my first real experience with, you know, shooting over a pointing dog and watching that all work. But like I said, he was never super well trained so it was often more of like an inconvenience and i at that age i found myself enjoying being out there without the dog and just being out in the quiet and you know looking for birds on your own um but now uh my girlfriend and i we've had an english setter for the past uh, two years now with the intention to you know really make him a good bird dog and you know my opinion on all of that has completely changed you know the satisfaction you get out of watching the dog work and a dog that you've put time in and is actually doing a good job, you know, is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is cool. You and I were kind of chatting yesterday. It's, I mean, I, I definitely had a lot of experience hunting without a dog, mainly just because I didn't have access to one, uh, but certainly found enjoyment in that. Um, now having, having sort of crossed over into the bird dog world, I don't see myself going, going the other way. That's for sure. But, um, definitely some very fond memories of, of, stomping around the woods as a kid and um, a little less responsibility you know you're just out there looking for looking for birds it's you're not running a dog so um there's a time mm-hmm. and place for it i feel like yeah you, you had a pretty good pretty good exposure i would say um you were certainly around around bird dogs and around grouse hunting so yeah yep and it, it caused me to really fall in love with setters yeah. and then my, my girlfriend had never even heard of them before and as soon as she met like one of my mom's setters when he was younger she was like, that's the dog we're getting. And so it was uh, not too hard to convince her. And we've had ours now for almost three years. So how long before that girlfriend becomes a wife, man? She's buying setters for you. <laughs> I know. Pretty soon. It's going to happen. <laughs> well, good for you. So so we, we got we got the the background a little bit. When did you when did you decide like natural resources, pursuing that kind of career profession was was going to be for you pretty early on? Yeah, pretty early on, everybody kind of knew me as like the bird kid and, you know, the guy that's always outside and super fascinated with animals. Um, And so, yeah, it was pretty evident from even like elementary school um, and had no hard decision, you know, choosing to major in wildlife in undergrad. And then I kind of always knew I wanted to 
a graduate degree in this field as well. And you almost need one if you want like a nice stable job at this point, it's getting pretty competitive in this yeah. field. So to, to have the title biologist of almost any kind, it's, it's expected that you have at least a master's degree now. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about that. Just, I mean, really just, in, you know, you're, you're still on the journey, uh, so to speak, mm-hmm. but just in case there's, you know, younger folks listening or people considering that, like, is that kind of the kind of the way to go about it? Any sort of thing you would recommend as far as sort of what you've learned through through your experience so far, as far as pursuing something similar? Yeah, I definitely recommend getting that field experience. You know, I after your undergrad, you know, it took me a while. I was, uh, you know, I bounced around the country, like I said, for five, six, seven years before I was really able to get this nice uh, master's program. Um, and especially if you're trying to get one like fully paid for like this one, it's nice to go and spend at least a year or two doing the, these field jobs with wildlife. It doesn't have to be birds, but they're really looking for that experience so that you've got your hands on stuff and you kind of know how the data collection process goes in this field. And it's also very fun. I mean, that was like some of the right. most fun times of my life was going out there, catching the critters. You just, you're getting paid to do all this cool stuff outside and you get to live in the most beautiful parts of the country, usually when you do this kind of thing. So yeah, get that experience. And sometimes your first job might not pay that well or at all. It might be a volunteer or internship. That's definitely something that this field needs to work on is, you know, getting those entry level jobs and experience opportunities to, you know, pay these people more. Um, but it is possible. And, you know, if you do a good job and you get good references, um, you should have a good shot at getting into a nice grad program. Yeah. Very cool. What, where was the, the stop where you were working with Bob White Quail for a bit? That was in Oklahoma. I worked for Oklahoma State University in conjunction with their uh, DNR down there. I forget what it's called, the, the state agency. Um, that was a winter job, which you see quite a bit less of, of these like seasonal field jobs, They're much more spring, summer centric. And the, the winter ones are harder to get. Um, that was kind of bouncing all over the, the state. We bounced between different WMAs down there, catching bobwhite quail and putting little trackers on them. And uh, there were some grad students that were working with that data, looking at um, like some fine scale vegetation selection uh, right. for the Bob White, um, at least in the winter. I think it might still be going on too. That was a couple of years ago. That uh, GPS tracking technology. Yep. That was, uh, yeah, that was GPS. They had little solar panels on them and they could actually beam the data right back up to the satellite. And then yeah. the researchers could just get it right onto their computer. Is that pretty much sort of taken over now? Like, I mean, do they, is there anywhere? Because I think like the one thing about, from what I understand, I have a little bit of exposure to it just with um, they've done some some woodcock migration studies using the GPS transmission. Mm-hmm. Actually, my buddy um, who's part of the Wisconsin Sharptail Grouse Society, they're they're using them for uh, sharptail grouse here as well. I mean, it's kind of mm-hmm. it's obviously great technology, but potentially cost prohibitive. I mean, do, does anybody still do the telemetry or radio tracking stuff, or is it pretty much pony up for GPS? Oh, nope. There's still a lot of the telemetry. I think you're referring to the the VHF, the very high frequency 
antennas, you know, when you see the biologist standing out there with a funky antenna in their hand, yeah. listening, yeah. ding, ding. Yeah, that's still very much implemented today. And I'm using it on, on my project in addition okay. to GPS, just because it's, it's so cheap. It's analog. You, those those radio transmitters can last a very long time just because they don't have to do much. Mm-hmm. Um, no, still very much implemented today. And yeah, you're right. The GPS things are expensive, but the technology is really coming along. And we're now at the point where we can put little GPS transmitters on little songbirds. And I even just had a, a visiting researcher at this university who was putting them on hummingbirds in South America. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I have this image burned into my head. There was an old um, grouse hunting. It was it was done by Tom Hugler, who's you maybe know him. He's a Mich- Michigan guy, I believe. Writes in all the magazines. I think I've heard that name. Yeah. 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 He's wrote, 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 written books. And um, he had a, it was like grouse and grouse hunting, a VHS tape. I watched it over and over again. And there was this, they had a little segment in there where they were, they were doing that, those studies. And there's this guy standing there with the big antenna. And I just never forgot that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's tricky. It's definitely more of an art than a science to get good at that. I'm still learning, even though I spent a whole summer doing it last year. Got Imagine to again this out, out west, they would have some challenges with terrain and topography. Yeah, well, yeah, the mountains and the canyons can really throw it off. It bounces the signal around. Um, yeah, it, it takes a while to get used to. It definitely takes some training. Um, luckily, I also am using GPS units, but they're not. They don't send the, the GPS data up to the satellite. I actually have to download it with this okay. separate antenna. Um, it's called a store on board GPS unit. So it can actually take a lot more data points because it doesn't need to waste the battery to beam the data back up to the satellite. And you also don't have to pay the satellite phone bills. That's actually just as expensive as the units themselves. Um, so this allows me to take much more data on, on the grouse, but I have to have a line of sight to, to download that data. And you can do it from a couple miles away. There just can't be like a hill or any major like tree stand in the way. But then you also have to f- get a kind of an idea of where that bird is to begin with, hence the, the VHF. So we have both on each bird. And we use the VHF uh, telemetry to kind of get an idea of what drainage the bird's in, what side of a hill it's on. And then we can kind of know where do we got to stand to get that line of sight to actually download all the GPS points that it's taken. Uh, are you telling me that these the satellite company like who are these companies that are charging you guys to do conservation research? <laughs> I don't know if I should say them, but uh, it is it is expensive, and it's just kind of a. I mean, it, it is a trade off because I'm I'm able to get much more data off value of these words. Yeah. The ones that are beaming the data up to the satellite, you know, you only get maybe a location every couple hours, a few a day. I'm getting locations every 20 minutes on the dusky grouse here yep. in Utah. And it's uh, it's when you get that much more of a finer scale on their like locations, you can answer a lot more questions and you get draw a lot more inference out of the data set you get. Yeah, I know that's a that's a key component to some of the studies they're doing with, with again, the sharp tails here in Wisconsin and just because it's a very limited relatively speaking the habitat is very limited and so they're really trying to get a handle on where do these birds go and mm-hmm. where are they spending their time from season to season and if we come in and and take down a red pine stand or open up a open up another 40 here how do the birds react and how do the birds use it so that's where that technology is very valuable mm-hmm. definitely what's so so 
and again, I'm just kind of curious at this point, the, the radio, the telemetry, VHF, what, so you've got to go out there and ping those birds. So you basically have to find them so you can see the trade-offs there, but what, um, what is the benefit to, to that? And what do you get? Obviously it's cheaper. Is that the primary benefit or what, what is the real sweet spot of where VHF makes sense? Um, yeah, it's way cheaper. And, um, where the main reason I'm using it is just so I can get like an idea of where I need to stand to download the real data from the actual GPS logger. So it's, it's two separate devices that I have on these birds. You know, they're kind of stuck together on this harness, this like leg harness that the birds wear. The devices sit kind of right on the rump, um, in between the legs on the back. And there's a solar panel for the GPS thing that's like logging this data every 20 minutes. And it's actually taking temperature, accelerometer data, a few other things in addition to the the location. But since this data is not being beamed up to the satellite, I have to kind of have a rough idea of where the bird is at any given day. So I know where I need to stand to download it with a completely separate antenna that just connects with the GPS device. So that's why we need the VHF on there too. So we kind of get an idea of where they are so I can then download the real data that I'm really interested in. Yeah, I, I gotcha. And all right, apologies if I missed this, but did you say how close you need to be to the bird to download that GPS data? Um, it's the, the real kicker is line of sight. And so okay. I've actually gotten it from about five miles away is the furthest. Oh, wow. um, I actually flew in the plane a couple of weeks ago and we downloaded some data and I mean, we weren't five miles away, but we were like a couple hundred feet off the ground. Sure. That's pretty easy because there's no obstructions. Right. Um, then that's just the big thing you got to worry about is obstructions, hills, cliff edges. You just need that straight line of sight to the device with this kind of antenna that you hold in your hand. And then you'd need a little bit of time, depending on how much data is on there, the bird might have to hold still. Uh, you can also reprogram the tags remotely with these devices. So you don't ever have to catch the bird again if you want to change some of the settings on the GPS device. What types of settings might you change on it? Just like like um, what data? The, how often it takes a point. Like yeah. yeah, how often it's taken a GPS location. And then there's the accelerometer data. How often is it taking accelerometer data, which is just kind of like movement and yeah, the so idea is like, like if the bird's flying or walking or yeah, that's kind of what it's for is you can ideally classify the behavior at the, any given time, but it's not like an, a continuous accelerometer data. It's, it's taking it in like increments. Yep. And so you can, you can play with that. You can play with when you want it to turn on and off. Cause I, I don't, I'm not interested in collecting data when the bird's asleep. So you can tell it to turn off, you know, at a, like sunset or something like that. Um, yeah, there's a, there's quite a bit of parameters that you can tweak. Don't need to go into all of it, but it's, it's really convenient to not have to re-catch the bird again. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's obviously the biggest, I would think manpower heaviest lift Mm -hmm. would be actually capturing and, and uh, putting, putting the trackers on. Well, we kind of, we kind of walked right into this. So let's give me a, let's back up a step and, and talk to me about the birds that you are studying and sort of the. Uh, high level gold, what you're trying specifically trying to find out in, in what you're doing. Okay. Yep. So this is the, the forest grouse project at Utah state. Um, it's almost completely funded by the wildlife agency here, the UDWR. 
and it's got some pretty broad goals. It's, it's mostly focused on the dusky grouse, but we have the rough grouse here as well. Um, so we're uh, collecting some data on them as well. But it's mo- mostly to just kind of get some of these life history traits of the dusky grouse in this region, which is not really that well studied. There's just a lot of things that we don't know about these birds. Um, so the, the telemetry aspects of my project are really looking into the brooding and nesting habitat of dusky hens. You know, that's a very vital part of their life cycle where she's taking the chicks when they're such a young age. That's when they're getting picked off by predators the most. That's when they're dying the most. So if we can learn a lot about this point in the life cycle, you know, we could potentially manage for their success. Um and then I'm also really personally interested in their, this reverse migration that they do. Mm. The dusky grouse, unlike almost all altitudinal migrants, you know, they go up in elevation towards the top of the mountain for the winter. They spend all winter up there in these conifers, sometimes really close to the tree line. And then they come back down in elevation uh, in the spring, in the early spring, and they start their courting and their mating. And then the hens stick around all summer to nest and and breed and uh, rear their young. And there's just very little known about the the migration routes that they take and their winter space use. Like, what are they doing all winter? They, they inhabit these places that are really hard to get to in the winter. And so there's just not many observational studies done on uh, the dusky grouse at all, uh, especially in the winter and uh, looking at these migrations. Yeah. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are we, are we kind of at a point where like GPS tracking, you know, it's been around for a while, but as far as like the, um, 
who can use it and how we can use it. I mean, would you say that we're still kind of like, it's sort of a new frontier as far as like getting a base level of data for some of these birds, like, you know, maybe dusky grouse isn't the first, you know, GPS tracking study that they ever, ever did, but you're, you're doing it now. Would that be kind of a fair Mm -hmm. assessment of where we're at with GPS technology? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really been coming along and it's, it's been really heavily applied on like certain species of interest. It's just the species like the dusty grouse have been ignored for a while. And some of it has to do with their whole like taxonomic like split that they had a couple decades ago. So back when they were the blue grouse, um, much of the literature was coming out of the Pacific Northwest um, and they were applying these results on the entire species at the time, the blue grouse. So, you know, these results coming out of the Pacific Northwest on the now sooty grouse, um, they were using those inferences to manage for the now dusky grouse here in the Intermountain West. And since they split the species in like 2005-ish, there really hasn't been any major like long-term studies on dusky grouse. So we have some catching up to do in that respect. And that's, that's a big reason that they got the funding for this project. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think I, I know that when I, before I interviewed Noah Davis, um, he had written an article in shooting sportsman and that kind of caught my attention. And he, he laid that out. I'm sure we talked about it, that distinction between sooty and, and dusky, but, but maybe take me back in just sort of layman's terms. Um, is it, is it a, purely geographical that we're making this distinction or like the sooty grouse, they kind of inhabit these sort of, uh, coastal like almost rainforest environments and and the dusky is more mountainous or would that not be fair to categorize them based that's, on that? Yeah, that's, that's pretty close. Um, yep. Sooty grouse are definitely more of like a Pacific Northwest, even down into the Sierras. Um, and then all the way up into Alaska kind of hugging yep. that side. And then the duskies are much more intermountain West. They have a, a larger range and there's very little little overlap between the two. There's a little bit um, of like a hybridization in like parts of Washington and British yeah. Columbia, but you're gonna know what you're seeing based on where you are. Then there are there are subtle like uh, differences um, between the two, but it, it can be colored hair sacks. Yep, for the most part they do, and it kind of gets confusing because there's subspecies of both of them, Okay, and there's some crossover in those subspecies, so a lot of people like to look at the tail band, and I've heard some people say that one or the other doesn't have a tail band, but actually both species have a tail band, and as you move north, the subspecies of both start to exhibit less of a tail band, Um, and then... The sooties have the yellow eyebrows and the yellow like throat sacs. We call those aptera. Um, and then the duskies have sometimes yellow eyebrows and then the red aptera. Mm. But there's some sometimes they, they can actually change their eyebrows different colors. They can flip back and forth between yellow and orange and red. And this is just the duskies. I don't know if the sooties can do this, but like one of my first experiences with a dusky is when I was working in Yellowstone on the bird crew there and I had a dusky come up to me. He was doing his display and I took all these pictures and video of it. And it wasn't until I got home and I was reviewing my footage that I saw his, his eyebrows change between yellow, orange, and red. It just happened like so slowly in real wow. time that you didn't notice it, but they can actually flash those colors back and forth 
Yeah, it's pretty wild. I think it has something to do with like circulation and how much blood they send up there. Yeah. Well, my my mind goes immediately to to turkeys because you know I I recently started hunting them and I it was it was a it was not my first hunt but my one of my first hunts where I came to the realization that like they actually change the color, you know, they get that red head. And I was like, wow, I just, I kind of always envisioned the turkey's head being this sort of reddish blue white, but no, it actually changes like before your eyes. It's kind of unbelievable. Yeah. It like swirls around. It's pretty trippy. That's birds for you. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, so where you are studying these birds, imagine Utah being, uh, somewhat, you know, it's a Western state. I would imagine there's, there's lots of public land there. You're pretty much doing everything on public land or, or where it's, uh, what sort of property. Type yeah. I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that my, my study area is actually really close to home. Um, I'm in the, the cash national forest, which is just, you know, right outside of town, right above campus here. Most cases, you know, people doing field work or whether it's with a graduate degree or whatever, their field site is, you know, usually somewhere far away from where they live and they sure. got to go stay in some sort of field housing or camp or what have you. But I, I'm very fortunate. I get to come and like sleep in my own bed every night. Um, so yeah, all, our study area is just above town in the Cache National Forest um, in the Bear River Range of that national forest, right in Northern Utah, kind of along the Idaho border. Okay. Um, so, as far as like what you, I'm just thinking like what, uh, anything interesting, like, have you had, have you had bird loss where you got to go out and, and pick up a, pick up a transmitter off of a dead bird? And what, what are the causes of that? Um, any, any sort of unique things happened during the course of the study so far? Um, yeah, I had one dusky shot, oh, really? um, by him. Yeah. And the guy was really like, uh, apologetic about it i think he was on uh, like one of the pheasant forever committees around here and as soon as he picked her up he instantly knew like oh no what did i do right um but these transmitters we kind of paint them to be camouflaged and it's really hard to tell if one's on there right and we have our phone number on the band of the bird as well and so he called us up and i was able to go to retrieve that the transmitter itself was actually untouched that's um, cool which is nice because it's really expensive that's the only one that I know for sure I've lost, but they, like I said, they do this migration in the fall. So I've essentially like hardly heard from them at all since October. And I did this flight, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago and I was able to download some data, but I still wasn't able to find uh, a handful of them. And that's just how it goes. You know, a bunch of them are going to die every winter anyway. Right. So right. this spring will be the real test of if I can track down all these transmitters that are on dead birds. Okay. Did you say how many you have out right now? Yeah, I have eight. Only eight. Okay. They're a hard bird to catch. I didn't really get started until August of last summer. Our transmitters were still in the mail until about August. And so I spent all of August and September catching birds, putting out the transmitters. And we catch rough grouse too. Um, and we're banding every, you know, like weighing and taking all these biometrics of every bird we catch. No. But we're only putting the transmitters on dusky hens that you know weren't born that year so much more of a limited selection of what we could put the transmitters on because that's what we're interested in we want to you know make sure we're, we're spending the resources on the right demographic here um so i caught quite a bit of both species um both sexes of both species but we were only putting these gps transmitters on the dusky hens what is the i 
uh, understand you want to maximize, like, what is the scientific justification for doing uh, adult hens? Um, it kind of ties back to the, the goals of this program or this project, identifying the, the nesting habitat and the brooding habitat. So the males play no role in the rearing of the young and incubating yeah. the nest. In fact, they, you know, they'll come down in March, April, and May to court um, and, you know, do their breeding displays. And then sometimes they're back up and they're heading back up towards the top of the mountain come July. And they're already trying to be settled in for winter because I think that's where they feel the most comfortable is up in these higher elevations. And they just sit there and they eat conifer needles all winter. They're like uh, one of the few types of species that can metabolize these conifer needles. And they just feel really at home. A lot of people like to think of them as like the the prairie grouse of the mountains, you know, kind of like they're very closely related to a sage grouse as they can eat these chemically defended plants. And they do these big, long movements, and they really just kind of go to these areas where they're a little more vulnerable to, to breed. And as soon as the males can get out of there, they're out of there. The females got to stick around and make sure their chicks live and live till the fledge date. And then everybody's starting to move September, October back towards the top of the mountain. Now, what is the – are they a lecking bird? Or now, now I'm, I'm confusing this because I'm thinking of the spring hoot. For the sooty grouse, mm-hmm. um, what is the the breeding display behavior for the males of dusky and sooty grouse? Uh, yeah, so it's very similar between the two species. And no, they are they're not technically a lecking bird. Okay, um, so the males will kind of at least well the duskies and the sooties have a slightly different method of display. The sooties are often up in a tree and doing their hoot, their hooting display, which is like, it's that really low frequency. And the the sooty is actually much higher in frequency than the dusky, despite still being very low. The dusky is, it holds the record. Well, not the record, but it's up there for one of the lowest frequency animal sounds out there. It can get down to 50 Hertz, which is approaching like subsonic. And a lot of people can't even hear it. It's so low. And if the bird's more than like 50 meters away from you, you really have no chance of hearing it. And you'll often feel it in like your, your diaphragm and your throat, yeah. but you have no idea which direction it's coming from. Sometimes like a rough grouse drumming, you know, you'll I, hear it, yeah. but you can't really pinpoint the direction it's coming from. Yep. It's like that to the extreme with the dusky grouse hooting display. And uh, they don't lack. The males will kind of just find, they'll claim a territory once they come down from the mountain in the spring. And they'll often, you know, inhabit these more open areas, at least where I'm at. It's kind of more of like a sage, steppy, rolling hill area with patches of aspen. We have maple here and then patches of various conifers. But it's very um, patchy. You know, there's a lot of openness in between all of this. Mm-hmm. And the males, they'll kind of find a, like a, a high point, always on the ground. They won't go up in a tree like a sooty. And they'll do their booming display or their hooting display. And... Um, yeah, they're just trying to attract hens to mate, and that's basically how it goes. So sometimes they'll be like, they'll, you'll be in a spot where you have a bunch of them, but they're not next to each other. They might be separated by like three, four hundred yards, and they're they're definitely playing off each other, kind of like a lek, but it's not a true lek because they're they're all they're so far away from each other. But you know, one will go, then the other will go, and they they might be fighting for some hen in between them. 
and they'll, they'll definitely play off of each other, but they certainly don't all gather in a very tight spot, like a true right. lecking grouse. Yeah. That, ma- that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. A bit of a distinction. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're very closely related to most of the lecking grouse, like sage right. grouse and sharpies, but they are, they're not, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're more like a, what was a prairie grouse that has since moved into the mountains and started to develop different traits and behavior. Well, talk to me about the capture process because I think listeners will find that uh, a bit interesting. Yeah, it's, it's pretty difficult. Uh, we have two methods. One is a lot more fun than the other. Uh, the, the passive method is we use these kind of walk-in funnel traps that are not baited um, because we're, we're catching them in the spring and summer and there's they have no incentive to like go into a baited trap. They have all the food they could eat at that time of year. And so you have to kind of funnel them into the the trap itself with these, um, we call them wings or like little fences that might be like one or two feet tall. And you just kind of stake out these, these fences and two of them will come together in like a funnel shape. And then they kind of turn into a, a tunnel. And then you're at the actual trap itself which has like a, a true like funnel door where they can like kind of go in, but it's really hard for them to get back out. But to get them to walk into those places is pretty difficult. It's all about where you place the trap. And the idea behind how the trap works is the birds just kind of clucking along on the ground. It hits this fence and it doesn't go over the fence. It's just going to turn right or left and follow the fence until it can get around it. And then before it knows it, it's kind of being funneled into this more of a, a tunnel. And now it's it's got to make the decision to go in the trap or not. Most of them, uh, I think, kind of squirm out of there and don't go in the trap. We never know because we don't really have cameras on it. Yeah. But once they're in, you know, they're, they're stuck in there. And so we will check those traps every day when they're up. Kind of like um, a kind of like a minnow trap. If someone's familiar, like there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and hit it's that just, fence wall, you turn, and they walk along, and then you have a, a like a containment and where you bend in the the chicken wire or whatever, and then they walk in there and then they mm-hmm. find their way out, right? Yep, exactly. And sometimes we have these like convoluted designs where we'll have multiple traps all connected by different fences. That way, it doesn't matter which side of the fence the bird right. hits, yeah. which direction it chooses to turn, right or left, eventually it's going to find itself heading towards the trap. Whether it goes in or not, you know, we don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, those are very mildly successful. It's all about where you put them. We had some traps all summer, never catch a single bird. Other traps, you know, do very well and catch quite a bit of birds. And often we catch, like, broods, like, that'd be – Oh, a, wow. a brood hen with her well, several of her chicks all in the trap because they all follow each other yeah. in there. That that method was uh, described in detail in that Tom Hugler uh, grout video. So I've always remembered that, and I think that old diagram is basically exactly what he described. And I think mm-hmm. I could be making this up, but I'm pretty sure uh, a buddy of mine in high school we tried to set one of those up on our own, and uh, it was not successful. But we tried. Yeah, no, it, it takes it takes a while. It definitely was a learning curve for me. I had to. It took me almost a month before I even caught anything that way. Um, the other method, the more active method, we get to use bird dogs for. So we'll use the dogs, the pointing dogs. Um, we'll take them out there on like predetermined transects or just places that we think we're gonna run into birds, 
and then the dog will point a bird and it, it could either be a ruffed or a dusky and the bird will either, you know, stay put on the ground or it'll fly up into a tree nearby or it'll just take off and be completely gone. But if it's, if it stays put or if it flies up to a nearby tree, you know, we'll, we'll restrain the dog and we have these noose poles, like these telescoping poles okay. that we have, um, kind of a little noose made out of a fishing string at the end with a bunch of padding on it. So it's safe for the bird. And we just have to get that around the bird's neck. And then, then it can't go anywhere. Once you kind of tighten the noose and the noose will never completely close. We have it kind of locked so it won't ever completely close just enough. So the bird's stuck there. And then we all kind of like bum rush the bird and get it out of the noose as soon as possible. And then we put it in a bag that's much more fun, but it's also very mildly successful because, you know, often the bird just flies off after the dog points it, or maybe when you extend the noose towards it, the bird flies off. Sure, sure. Um, and you have to be very deliberate about, especially the trees that you try to noose a bird out of, because you have to get it to the ground safely. So if there's any sort of branches or bushes between where that bird is and the ground, it's a no-go and you can't do it. Yeah. You want to be able to get that bird on the ground and get it out of there as safely and as fast as possible. Um, and yeah, that's definitely the more fun method, but equally as successful because there's all these other things that could go wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My, my mind went immediately towards like, if you do get the noose over the neck, the bird, you know, that they're going to be maybe flopping around or something. So you obviously are, you guys are trying to restrain it and, and get it secure yep. as quickly as possible. Yep. And we all, we all carry uh, box cutters on our uh, belt when we're out there doing that in case for whatever reason that we got to cut it off immediately. Yep. But we often never really have to do that. We can get it out pretty quick. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's the fun way. And that's how we get to use the dogs in the research. We also use the dogs to find nests sure. um, kind of in the early summer, late spring just still pretty difficult. It's something about that nesting period that the dogs really struggle with the scent. I don't know if it's the bird itself that is kind of masking its scent at that time of the year, or if there's just so much other stuff in the environment that time of year, late spring, early summer, that the dogs just can't pick up things because we had a hard time finding nests. And then we found out later that we were really close to a bunch of nests and us and the dogs missed them all. Now, I know you have a bird dog. Have, are there are there others in the program? And, and you told me about some of your coworkers, colleagues yesterday um, that have dog. Have you had to go out and recruit any more bird dog power or you guys have it pretty covered? <laughs> um, yeah, a little of both. So, okay. yeah, another guy in my lab, he's got three dogs and he studies um, sage grouse for the most part. And he, like me, gets to use his dogs as part of his field work for doing certain surveys. Um and then our, our boss, our advisor, does a lot of this stuff, and he kind of made his career out of uh, using his dogs for his research. He mainly studied sage-grouse all through grad school and most of his professional life, and to this day continues to use the bird dogs for um, some long-term sage-grouse projects that have been going on here in Utah. And then we've been fortunate to hire uh, some technicians to work on our project that also have an affinity for bird dogs and have their own. And we encourage them to bring them out to the field and to help us out. Cause you know, we, we like to have as much dog power as possible. You can't run your dog for, 
more than two or three days in a row doing right. some of this stuff. And so it's nice to be able to trade them out. And I only have the one dog, but uh, it's nice when you have, especially when you're nest searching, the more dogs, the better, really. So it's the more dog power we can get for these summer field seasons, the better. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling uh, if you're looking for volunteers, there could be some could be some listeners out there that's eager to <laughs> yeah. ra- raise, raise their yeah. hand. You know? And I know when you're doing that sort of stuff, there's usually you know, protocols as far as like, like for woodcock banding here in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, you know, you kind of got to get your dog certified and sort of, because sometimes you are permitted to be out during what would otherwise be a quiet period for the sake of research, mm-hmm. but you've got to, um, they, they have to maintain certain standards as far as bird dog behavior and ensure obviously the safety of the birds. Yep. Yep. Definitely. And we're, we get volunteers as well. And we're, we're a little selective of, you know, who gets sure. to do it or not. Um, but there are some cases where, you know, we could really use more dog power. So if people in the area, you know, feel free to contact me and it's a good training opportunity too, for your dogs right. to get them out there. The birds yeah, all yeah, summer. It, it's a really neat, you know, I mean, when it works like mutually beneficial for the bird dog and handler, and then obviously for a for a common goal, greater cause. I mean, with, with the right precautions and, and an approach, I mean, it's really a win-win. So it's kind of cool. Yep. For sure. All right. Well, yeah, we'll definitely, uh, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll throw your email in the, in the show notes and, uh, at least sort of put that out there for folks. Mm-hmm. Is there like anything, do you have a personal goal or anything that you're, that you really hope to accomplish or uh, anything like that in mind is sort of like with this study. I know you talked about it from a high level, but is anything for you personally that you'd love to see or find out? Yeah. So, you know, the, the study was completely funded by the state with a certain set of like deliverables in mind, yeah. um, which I'm, I'm interested in that part, but my own personal, like what I'm personally really interested in, is this migration that they do okay. and what are they doing all winter? Cause there's like really nothing written about that at all. Like what the Duskies are doing all winter, how much space are they using? Um, you know, are they literally sitting in the same conifer tree all winter? Like some people think, or are they, they have more of a, a winter range where they're moving around. And then also just what like initiates these migrations um, from a little bit of past work on this project, like I'm the second student on this project. Um, the first student had a, a dusky go like close to 40 miles between her, her wintering range and where they caught her in the nest. And then she had exhibited really high site fidelity. She returned to the same general area where they caught her the next spring. And then she returned to the same wintering spot about 40 miles away the following winter. So they have this high site fidelity and they just have this urge to not only go up in elevation, but to sometimes travel really far. But they don't all do that. Some just go up in elevation and aren't traveling that far. So That's it'd be cool to get to the bottom of some of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything that you have sort of picked up in your research so far as far as like we'll, we'll maybe segue a little bit into the hunting side of things. Um not that you're going to uh, go right back to your study sites to to hunt. Not that not that you no. wouldn't, but like, what have you what have you learned um, as far as like dusky grouse, their habitat, sort of um, areas? Anything you would share if somebody said, "Hey, where can I find dusky grouse?" Um, yeah, I mean, just based on what I've seen in my work and the little bit we've gotten from 
some past research on this project is if you're interested in the both dusky and rough grouse, um, it's like right when the season opens is like the best time, at least in this part of the country. And I think that's kind of a, a general case for most of the range yeah. here. It's September 1st. And I think it's, that's pretty similar to where it is in these adjacent States. That's just when you're going to have the most birds in the more accessible areas um, that you can don't have to hike way up the mountain to get to. But you have to keep in mind from like an ethical standpoint that those birds are hens and hatchier birds. And if you want those big males, you're going to probably have to work a little bit, get up in the higher elevations, find yourself in more of these conifer dominated landscapes. Um, And then as the season goes on, you're going to have to kind of follow this migration up in elevation. You're going to start seeing less and less of them where you saw them in September. You know, they're not going to be there anymore. Um, And you just got to try and predict where you think they might be as September moves into October and onward. They become much, much harder to encounter. Um, And if you want to avoid, you know, just getting a bunch of brood hens and the young of the year, then, you know, maybe move up an elevation from the get-go because come September 1st, a lot of those big males are are already out of the hills and they're kind of moved up into the, the conifers and the higher elevations. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that would be a, a definitely a key takeaway as far as, like, if you were to try to, you know, skew your, your targeting towards the towards the adult males. Um, though mm-hmm. they're, they're on the move a little bit earlier. That'd be, that would be good information. Probably. Mm-hmm. How about Keith? Yep. And Keith? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, uh, one other thing to add, as far as like uh, taste goes, uh, like the this is just from what I've noticed this year. Like anecdotally, as the birds do move up in elevation and their diet does switch over to the conifers, their meat becomes like a lot more purple and yeah. it's a little more tough. And they, I don't want to say they taste bad. You just have to cook them a different way. You have to cook them slower and longer. Um, but when they're still in the lower elevations and they have that much more varied diet, you know, their meat is pretty similar to a rough grouse, you know, nice and pink and lean and you can cook it up just like a rough grouse, but as they, their diet switches over, it becomes a lot more tough. Yeah. I've definitely, definitely heard that. And I've seen, I see that a little bit with spruce grouse here. They're, they do, they're similar in that they very much transition into, eating the spruce needles and conifer stuff. And, um, yep. you know, it's been, it's been a while since I've actually bagged a spruce grouse. I don't, I don't really target them. Um, I could, I could get into them. I used to see them more frequently cause I would hunt a little bit different area, but, um, yeah, I've, I've noticed that as well with, with some of those grouse. But if you get one early, um, it's much more, like you said, it's, it's tends to be more lighter colored meat and, um, just different food sources. And that's what, that's really what I was going to ask you. Um, key food sources. Now I would imagine those, uh, early season birds are eating, you know, it's probably grasshoppers are probably eating a lot of insect stuff. Um, any, mm-hmm. any sort of foliage, fruit or plant stuff that you would identify as a key food source. Yeah. Especially in the early season, at least around here, we have a lot of service berry bushes. Okay. Yeah. Um, you'll find their crops full of that, um, right when the season begins. And then we also still have a lot of hoppers, grasshoppers here into October. Um, and so that's the other really big thing I'll find in there. 
Well, various like forbs and parts of plants that I can't identify. I don't think they eat much, if any, aspen uh, like the roughies do. Um, but yeah, it's it's like all bets are off kind of in that uh, early season of September. They could be eating all kinds of things. I would target service berries or any sort of like similar berry, like choke cherries are kind of similar. Snowberries we have around here. Those are those white berries that are yeah. really bitter for us. But yeah. you'll I'll see a lot of crops full of them. And that's just, they're kind of in those more open areas still at this time. And so that's really what they're feeding on. Sounds like a native grouse species to me. Yep. <laughs> yeah, cool. So, all right. So you've been out there. You were out there this fall in, in Utah. And uh, obviously I've spent plenty of time chasing dusky grouse and rough grouse around but i know you've got to do a little bit else what was it what was it like being out there for your first fall and getting to uh hunt the upland upland variety really that utah has to offer yeah it was a blast and i just kind of really became addicted to the forest grouse like right yeah. when the season started mostly because i just i could predict where they were having spent all summer with them and that's what i grew up with I, i'm much more like walking through like the woods and you know, not really knowing what's coming around corners and stuff like that. I really just enjoy the, the forested landscape of hunting. Um, so that was essentially my, my entire September and October was chasing forest grouse, um, getting getting both, uh, probably equal parts of both. Uh, the roughies are a lot more predictable. They're not really going anywhere. They're always going to be in the, the same spots. Um, but then, yeah, as the season went on, it was quite the fun challenge to try and find a dusky and We'd have like a couple of weeks go by where all we got were were roughs, and then we were like, "Yeah, let's get out of here. Let's go up and try and find a dusky." And then you're you're really putting in the miles and trying to go up an elevation, and you get to like some of these really tricky spots on these like rocky ridges. That's another thing they seem to like is these ridges mm-hmm. where they can just pitch off in either direction when something happens, and that's that what they sense. do. You don't you get the one chance to get them. And then they're gone. They could be two miles away on the other side of the drainage. Wow. Um, and then I got really into the the pheasants in November. We have a good population of them up here in the valleys of northern Utah. And so that's essentially what I was doing all in November was chasing is that, pheasants. Is that like purely wild pheasants or is there a release? There's a lot or? of both. Okay. There's a lot of both. The, the, the state does do some releases. There's also a, a, a game farm in the valley, which is probably a good source for some of the wild okay. population. Yeah. But we have a robust wild pheasant population here in this area. You'll see them in town. They, I used to oh, get wow. them in my backyard, drive my dog crazy. You'll hear them like crow <laughs> sure. uh, throughout town. Um, but the state does release some at some WMAs. But I, I'm really trying to get away from there because that's where all the people are. And so I try and find like other utility land or other public land that I know is going to be holding wild pheasants. That was really my first season ever doing that. Uh, so that was a blast and it was a lot more uh, forgiving and I don't want to say easier, but you know, it's you're walking through on the flat ground and sure. you don't have to go up. Relatively and down speaking. Yeah. And the dog, the dog really liked it too. It was his first yeah. time doing that. Um, but we have other opportunities that I, I just didn't get the time to take advantage of. Uh, we have, um, a lottery sharp tail season, a lottery sage grouse season, which I think you, if you put in for two or three years, you'll probably draw one of them. But then we can bump over to Wyoming, which is just an hour away or less, where they have over the counter sage grouse. And then Idaho has over the counter sharp tail grouse. 
Um, and then obviously Utah has got all this chucker and the quail species, especially in the Southern part. Um, so it's, it's a great state for, for bird hunters. Oh, and we have huns here too, yeah. at least in these like North Northern counties, which huns and chucker, the season's still open now, right yeah. now in early February. Yeah. That's always, that's always the one that I would say eats at me, you know, this time of year when I'm pretty much shut down and I'm, I'm still talking to either customers of the gun company or just friends of mine that are, they're still out chasing chucker and huns. And that, uh, especially yeah. in a year like this, when I imagine we're all experiencing milder weather, um, I'm yeah. sure there's, there's some good hunting to be had out there. Yep. Yep. I haven't gone out yet, but I'm planning to this weekend. I just have like, isn't this the last weekend? Did you say? I think it is. I'm not certain, but I, I've either got one or two more weekends to try it out. Um, and now I've got some spots to check out. And they're in, they're also, you know, pretty remote, hard to get places. I'm sure yeah. most people know that. Um, so I'm excited to let's get out and try that. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's a good problem to have. You got too much opportunity. You can't even, you can't <laughs> yeah. even take advantage yeah. of it all. <laughs> yeah, how is, uh, we'll, we'll talk first bird dog here just briefly before we let you go, but how, how are things going with, um, as you mentioned to me, yes, kind of your, your first bird dog, um, that you're sort of raising and developing on your own, you and your girlfriend. Yeah, it's going pretty well. You still got a lot to learn. And, you know, so no do I, yep. as far as the whole bird dog training goes. Um, what really caught me off guard was just how much is just ingrained into them from the get go, like yep. all the instincts that they have. And you really don't have to teach the dog, like, you know, how to point and to hold and really what to be looking for. Like that amazed me that he was just able to do all that without any sort of training. Um, but yeah, obviously the staying close and the woe, um, we're still working on that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going well. I'm having a blast doing it and I really like being able to take him out to work and, uh, he could, yeah. he obviously really likes it too. You do kind of have to restrain him a little bit once you actually catch, catch a bird because that can drive some dogs crazy. No Not doubt. so much mine, but other dogs that have worked on the project have like chewed through their leash, you know, tied to a tree because oh, they Jesus. just use their mind when they see you like holding the bird for so long. Cause it takes like sometimes over half an hour to process the bird and get these transmitters on. So it almost, you almost need another person to like sit there and deal with the dog while everyone else is working on the bird. But no, it's been great. I couldn't ask for like a better experience to raise a bird dog um, and I'm really looking forward to getting going here again in this coming spring. Have you been, have you had your dog back to Michigan, back to the old stomping grounds in the grouse woods at all? I did. I, we drove back for Christmas break. I essentially had the entire month of December back in my stomping grounds. Oh, nice. And this was his first, that was his first roughies because we didn't really have him out when he was a puppy. And so those were his first Michigan grouse. We got two. We got to get out once or twice. Um, in December for, for hunting in the Great Lakes. Yeah, yeah, the late season. And it was, yeah, it was great. I mean, I couldn't believe some of the places we were able to access and drive to that time of year. And it, had it not been that way, we probably wouldn't have gotten into the birds. But no, it worked out great, and the dog had a great time. That's awesome, man. Uh, is there anywhere... Is there anywhere like, is your, most of your research kind of stuff you're doing kind of offline? Is there like uh, any sort of sub online that you could point people to and say, Hey, if you want to learn more about what we're doing, you could see it here. Anything like that? Um, yeah, they put out the, the guy that was working on this before me, um, put out this, uh, kind of like a, a flyer 
for forest grouse hunting in the fall to like improve your skills, at least for folks in this area. Yeah. Um, I can send that to you. It's very informative. I would encourage anybody that lives in the Intermountain West to give it a read. It's just a couple pages. It's got a lot of pictures, uh, all driven by data that was collected. And it's just going to give you tips on how to find duskies and roughs um, at the different times of year or times of the season, you know, and what to look for as far as cover, uh, even aspect, which side of the mountain to be on. Um, and there's also some pretty informative stuff on how to age and sex both species, if that's something you're interested in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Is that, is that like a, a PDF with a... Yeah, it's just a PDF that's online. I'll send it to you. Uh, you can put it out there. Other than that, it's not too much that's like available online. I post a little bit of stuff on my Instagram, yep. but... Other than that, we kind of just got to wait until like all the results are in to like really publish a lot of this stuff. Yeah, no, that's that sounds fantastic. That sounds like a great resource, and uh, absolutely, yeah. Send me the link to that, and we'll put that in the show notes for everybody. And uh, it's good stuff. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to to share with us on the Birdshot Podcast. It's been a ton of fun. Uh, I, I wish you the best of luck in your education and career. Uh, I salute you in your dedication and passion for birds and, and specifically upland birds. So keep up the great work, my friend. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure being on. All right, buddy. Hang on with me for just a second. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.